It is nearly 12 o'clock and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thank you for listening to KMXT. On 100.1 FM, we are your public radio station, broadcasting from beautiful downtown Kodiak, Alaska, where we have mostly cloudy skies. Humidity is at 67% at the airport right now, where they are clocking northwest winds to 7 miles per hour and 10 miles of visibility. They're still calling for these clouds to blow away and mostly sunny skies to take their place with a high near 35 today, west winds to 15, gusting to 20. For tonight, a slight chance of snow between midnight and 3 a.m., followed by scattered snow showers, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight with a low around 30, light and variable winds turning to the east to 10 after midnight. Coming up on the Midday Report... A project building eight bridges over the Good River near Gustavus has come to a close. It's part of a national fish passage program. And scientists at the University of Fairbanks are studying solar energy production combined with food production. And those scientists are also bouncing radio signals off asteroids. Those stories and more after headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Ongoing airline chaos, spoiled holiday plans, and deepening frustration for stranded passengers. It's prompting a federal investigation into what's going wrong. Today, total canceled flights into and out of the U.S. top 3,000, most of them from Southwest Airlines, which says the disruptions will go on into the week. They cite bad weather, but the pilots' union says it's the airline's own outdated systems. President Biden says his administration will make sure airlines are held accountable. NPR's Tamara Keith reports. What started with a record-setting winter storm snowballed into an operational disaster for Southwest. Crews out of place, thousands of flights canceled, lost and abandoned luggage piling up at airports, and customers calling for help getting busy signals instead of answers. In a tweet, President Biden said his administration is working to ensure airlines are held accountable. The Department of Transportation said it is concerned by Southwest's unacceptable rate of cancellations and delays and reported lack of prompt customer service. In a statement, Southwest says it has let down its customers and employees and, quote, our heartfelt apologies for this are just beginning. Full disclosure, this reporter experienced all of these issues firsthand. Tamara Keith, NPR News. A historic blizzard in Buffalo, New York, is tapering off, but there's already talk of potential flood risk from four feet of melting snow later this week as the weather warms. But today, the focus remains on search and rescue as first responders make their way around and warn they will be delayed. 28 people are confirmed dead from the storm there. Erie County Executive Mark Polenkars is asking residents to cooperate and stay home, but says reinforcements are needed. 100 military police are being brought in, as well as additional troops from the New York State Police Department are coming in to manage traffic control because it has become so evident that too many people are ignoring the ban. After days of closures, grocery stores are starting to reopen, spurring some people to venture out for needed supplies. 
Hospitals in China under intense strain amid an explosion in coronavirus cases. NPR's Emily Fang reports Omicron is spreading largely unchecked as Beijing relaxes longstanding lockdowns. Emergency rooms and hospitals across the country, even in the capital Beijing, continue to report two to three times the normal number of patients. Ambulance services have been stretched so thin, people calling for help have been told it could be a several hours wait. <laughs> This emergency room nurse says her hospital finally received about a dozen new ambulances to cope with demand. They need more, but Beijing is still in the midst of procuring them. China did not accelerate the stockpiling of medical resources before the latest surge. Emily Fang, NPR News. It's NPR. NPR News is brought to you in part by Providence Kodiak Island Counseling Center. For an appointment or more information, 481-2400. For KMXT, I'm Terry Haynes. An eight-bridge project over the Good River near Gustavus has finally drawn to a close. It's part of a national fish passage program that received $40 million in last year's federal infrastructure law. As Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports, the project in southeast Alaska should help juvenile fish maneuver through the waterway. The land around Gustavus doesn't stay still. It's constantly rising from what's known as isostatic rebound. Basically, as a nearby glacier retreats, the pressure on the land lessens and it rises. The land in Gustavus is rising faster than anywhere else in the world, about an inch a year. It's been doing that for 200 and whatever years. Since the mid-1700s, to be more precise. Mike Halbert is a longtime fishing guide in Gustavus. I've been fishing there for 30 years, so three, four, five feet of difference. <laughs> and, and you can see it on charts since it was charted in the 60s. The rising land is one reason the federal government spent the last decade fixing eight bridges over the Good News River and its tributaries. The funding comes from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's National Fish Passage Program, which received $3.5 million for Alaska projects in the bipartisan federal infrastructure law. The Good River runs from Glacier Bay National Park to Icy Straits. In recent decades, while the land continued to rise, so did the metal culverts. But the streams kept cutting into the land, causing the culverts to overhang the water. That's a problem when they're home to salmon, dolly varden, and cutthroat trout. If the uh, water was where it came out of the culvert, if it was creating a waterfall, they considered it a hindrance for the uh the young coho to move upstream, they'd be reluctant to jump, unlike the adult. Halbert says the Good River doesn't have a lot of fish in it. It isn't nearly as big as the nearby Salmon River, where most locals and tourists go. The Good River is small and runs along roads, past town, and through a mudflat. Another local, fly fishing guide Natalie Vax, says mostly kids fish the Good River for salmon and trout. Kids catching cutthroats and dollies and Pink and silver on that little culvert side ditch thing on the side of the main road. There are a few spots where sometimes fish do gather. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service hopes the new bridges will allow more fish to spawn in the smaller stream. U.S. Assistant Secretary of the Interior, Shannon Estinos, oversees fish, wildlife, and parks. These projects are all about kind of what the name suggests, removing barriers to flow, removing barriers to fish passage, um, often updating 
either outdated or malfunctioning infrastructure that are impeding fish passage. Estenos is a civil engineer. She says when engineers are designing infrastructure like culverts and bridges, they can't always predict what will happen decades later. Sometimes the material fails or outlives its useful life. But the fish passage projects aren't just about saving fish, she says. They often fix multiple problems at once. Um, I'm finding as I'm traveling across the country that we might be helping fish, but we're often also improving flood protection or we're making it safer for folks to paddle the river to, you know, um, fish on the river as well. And apparently this has been a, an ancillary benefit for the good rivers. Fishing guide Mike Halbert doesn't see the local bridges making much difference for his industry, but he says it's a huge improvement for traffic across the waterways. And he says it's also provided jobs for road workers building the bridges. Obviously, the people that are working on the construction is a big benefit. The infrastructure law included $600,000 for the Good River's final bridge. The entire fish passage project totaled $1.76 million. Other fish passage projects in Alaska that received federal infrastructure funding included $1.3 million for the Little Toncina River in the Valdez Cordova borough and $1.6 million for the Tyonic Creek on the Kenai Peninsula. In Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. A project combining solar energy production with food production will launch next summer and be studied by scientists at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. KUAC's Robin reports. We've all heard of solar farms, but agrivoltaics actually combines solar with traditional farming, a mix that will be tested in Alaska for the first time this summer. As we're looking at an agricultural expansion in the north, um, we're looking at other opportunities to develop a sustainable food system. That's UAF Research Assistant Professor Glenna Gannon. She points to lower 48 studies that show some crops thrive when mixed with solar panels. So here it might be a little less intuitive, but that is our desire to evaluate what an agrivoltaic system in the state of Alaska looks like. The plan is to monitor the performance of crops and photovoltaic cells on a plot of land in Houston, Alaska. The research is funded by a Department of Energy grant and led by Chris Pike with UAF's Alaska Center for Energy and Power, or ASEP. So we're using a portion of this array to test a variety of crops so that we can look at how those crops affect the solar production and then how the solar panels affect the crop production. Gannon says the research will involve four crops important to Alaska. We're looking at floriculture or flowers, in this case peonies, because of the um, export nature of the peony market in Alaska. We're looking at forages. That is one of our largest agricultural crops in the state. Vegetable and row crops, that is because, well, we all need to eat. <laughs> and then native berries. We have both lowbush cranberries and blueberries located on this parcel. Pike says data from the project will help development of similar systems around the world. If you can do something like this in a challenging place like Alaska, then it speaks well how these systems are going to perform in other locations. The 8.5 megawatt solar photovoltaic array in Houston will be the biggest in the state, according to ASEP. Construction is expected to be completed and the first year's crops planted this summer. In Fairbanks, I'm Robin. And scientists in Alaska will bounce a radio signal off an asteroid today. The experiment will be preparation for another close flyby in six years. KUAC's Robin reports. 
There is a little asteroid that'll be close to Earth this week. Okay, close is relative. Right now it's about twice as far away from Earth as the moon is. The high-frequency active auroral research program in Gakona, what Alaskans know as HARP, will transmit radio signals to the little rock named Asteroid 2010 XC15. You know, there are lots of small asteroids that fly between us and the moon. It happens about once a week. Mark Haynes is the lead investigator on the project and a radar systems engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So this is the first time we're trying to do this with very low frequencies or very long wavelengths. And the difference is these long wavelengths you know, can penetrate the interiors of the asteroids. That's where HARP comes in. In spite of the name high-frequency active auroral research, this experiment uses low frequencies. Haynes says HARP is the lowest frequency, highest power transmitter available for JPL and NASA to use. In the experiment, HARP chirps about every two seconds, sending radio waves up to the asteroid to bounce back to Earth. They're going to steer their beam at the asteroid. We've got two radio observatories. One's in California, the Owens Valley Long Wavelength Array, and one is in New Mexico, the New Mexico Long Wavelength Array. They're both going to receive the signal. So HARP transmits and these radio observatories, they're going to track it for about 12 hours. The experiment was scheduled to start at 2 a.m., depending on conditions in the ionosphere. This is the first time HARP's signals probe an asteroid. The experiment tests the potential use of HARP for sensing what's inside near-Earth asteroids. The hope is if we uh, get these systems working together, that then eventually we can probe the interiors of these asteroids uh, as they come close. Haynes says there's another flyby coming very quickly in six years. In 2029, asteroid Apophis will pass less than 20,000 miles from our planet's surface. That's closer than our geosynchronous satellites. In 2029, Apophis will get very close. It'll be you know, about one-tenth the distance between us and the moon. And it's going to be a big event. And that's an opportunity that we have to try to actually probe the interior of the thing while it's flying past. These experiments with HARP and the radio observatories are, are kind of a rehearsal. Haynes says it will take months to process the data from this week's asteroid bounce. In Fairbanks, I'm Robin. Environmental groups are suing the federal government over this week's federal lease sale in Cook Inlet alleging the environmental analysis on the sale was incomplete and did not consider less harmful alternatives. The long-anticipated federal sale will put up for bid nearly one million acres and was previously canceled due to lack of industry interest. This time it's required in federal law. Sue Mauger, director of Homer nonprofit Cook Inlet Keeper, says the environmental review process was hurried to comply with the end-of-the-year deadline. Just because they were rushed to get this all done, that that does not allow them to skip steps, and they clearly have. She says the Interior Department failed to consider alternatives that could lessen the impacts of oil and gas development on wildlife, like auctioning off a smaller area of the inlet, for example. And she says the process does not take into account the requirements of the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, which sets the ground rules for environmental regulations. We ultimately want no oil spills. We want minimal, if any, impacts to our whales and sea otters and fisheries. It's unlikely a judge would rule on the case before the lease sale, which is to occur on December 30th. And it's unclear what would happen to leaseholders if a judge were to make a ruling on the case next year. Mauger says the plaintiffs hope the oil and gas companies will take the suit into account 
before they bid on leases. And she says it's important to let the Federal Bureau of Ocean Energy Management know that it has to follow a more rigorous environmental review before it holds a sale like this one and another one in the Gulf of Mexico. Our hope is, uh, first of all, that no one bids on December 30th. And uh, the second option is um, for BOEM to realize that they rushed through a lot of things and haven't addressed a, a great many concerns and that they go back and actually come up with a more reasonable environmental impact statement. The Department of the Interior declined to comment on the suit. There's no guarantee oil and gas companies will even place bids in this week's sale. Oil and gas company Hillcorp had been the only company to bid on federal leases in recent years. The company recently announced it was rethinking its natural gas contracts amid uncertain supply. A documentary film is being made about an Alaska native man who was fatally shot in Fairbanks by law enforcement officers on Christmas Eve 2017. The family of Cody Ayer is developing the documentary to share who he was and what happened to him, but also to effect a change in how calls for mental health issues are responded to. KUAC's Dan Bross reports. Cody Ayer was experiencing a mental health crisis had been drinking and was carrying a handgun when city police and Alaska state troopers responded to a call from his mother to check on the 20-year-old who was walking alone in sub-zero darkness on Christmas Eve 2017. During a protracted interaction along and off the Steese Highway, officers repeatedly ordered Air to put down his gun, which he aimed at himself and then toward the officers while making a threat. The officers shot Air multiple times, and he died at the hospital. The state found the killing was justified, but Ayer's family has maintained the heavily armed police and state troopers escalated a situation that could have been resolved without force. Five years later, Ayer's sister, Samantha Harrison, has received funding from the Sundance Film Festival and Time Entertainment to create a documentary about her brother. really kind of encompasses and helps better showcase Cody as a, a human, as an individual, and just the ways that our, our life has been impacted by losing Cody. Harrison says the film is also looking at her brother's killing. Just really dive into how wrong what happened to Cody is. The mentality that's there. Cody Ayer's dad, Kyle, says he hopes the documentary reaches the law enforcement officers who responded. So that, that they don't do this again, you know, maybe maybe it'll help with that. He and Harrison point to one positive change that's already happened, a new city crisis intervention team, which deploys mental health peers and professionals instead of police. If we didn't pitch a fit and we don't stand up for what's going on, you probably wouldn't see that crisis intervention team. If he had had a crisis intervention team helping manage him, the outcome would have been radically different. A wrongful death suit filed by the Air family against the city of Fairbanks and the Alaska Department of Public Safety is pending a judge's decision on whether the case will go to trial. Harrison stresses that her family isn't alone. This is an issue that has happened to other um, other people in the Fairbanks community in Alaska at large. The heirs and other families who have lost someone to officer-involved shootings are hosting a Christmas Eve party in Fairbanks, an annual holiday gathering Harrison says is open to all, especially anyone struggling with their mental health. In Fairbanks, I'm Dan Bross. 
Beaches in Clam Gulch and Nanilchik, once known for their abundance of clams, will be closed to clamors for the ninth year in a row next summer. The Alaska Department of Fishing Game announced the closure in response to continued low numbers on the east side of Cook Inlet. The clam populations crashed about a decade ago and have been slow to bounce back. In the meantime, clamors and sport fish charters have been taking their shovels over to the west side of the inlet, where the population is healthier. Slight improvements spurred the Alaska Board of Fish to set a threshold earlier this year for reopening the fisheries within limits. Mike Booz is area manager for the Sport Fish Division of Fish and Game. The fishery would open if the abundance of adult clams at either Clam Gulch or Nanilchik would be at least 50% of the historical average abundance. So in the spring, Fish and Game took to the beaches in Nanilchik and Clam Gulch to count clams. But despite the initial surge of optimism, they were disappointed by poor growth and survivability and kept the beaches closed. That's looking to be the case again this year. Still, Booz says they'll be out on the beaches doing surveys. Man, uh, extremely cautiously optimistic uh, would be the best way to describe it for a chance for the Nanilchik area to open this year. He says Nanilchik has a cohort of three-year-old clams that has been showing low growth but is surviving. Clam gulch hasn't been looking so good. Last year, the department saw a natural mortality of about 90% for adult clams. Uh, It would take a big surprise for clam gulch to open. Surveys for the upcoming 2023 season start in April. Home prices keep falling. I'm Kristen Schwab with the Marketplace Minute. Home prices fell in October for the fourth straight month. That's according to the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller National Home Price Index, which measures average home prices across the country. Higher mortgage rates are dampening demand, and many economists expect prices to continue to fall. This weekend's travel chaos continues today, with more than 4,600 U.S. flights canceled this morning. The majority of them came from Southwest Airlines. The U.S. Department of Transportation is planning to examine whether the airline's cancellations were controllable. Buffalo is bracing for two more inches of snow today, after a blizzard dropped more than four feet of snow on the city. At least 34 people have died. President Biden has offered Buffalo federal assistance. I'm Kristen Schwab with the Marketplace Minute. The Marketplace Minute is supported by KeyBank. Learn more at key.com slash cybersecurity. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Good afternoon and welcome to your Island Messenger for Tuesday. It is the 27th day of December, the year 2022. Sun rose today at 9.54. It will set again promptly at 4.27. That will give us 6 hours and 34 minutes of daylight, a gain of 51 seconds compared to yesterday. Our record high for this day was 65, set in 2021 last year. And our record low was 3 degrees, set in 1957. Currently 37 degrees under mostly cloudy skies. We have northwest winds to 7 miles per hour at the airport where they are registering 10 miles of visibility. The weather service is calling for mostly sunny skies this afternoon with a high near 35. West winds to 15 
gusting as high as 20. For tonight, a slight chance of snow between 1 and 4 a.m., followed by scattered snow showers. Partly cloudy overnight with a low around 30 tonight, light and variable winds turning to the east to 10 after midnight. And for tomorrow, rain and snow likely before 1 p.m., followed by snow between 1 and 4 p.m., then more rain and snow after 4 p.m. High near 40 tomorrow with east winds to 20, gusting to 25. Little or no snow accumulation is expected tomorrow. Looking at our local tides, we have a high tide coming up here at 432 this afternoon on the east side. That will be a 9.4 foot tide. Followed by a low tide at 1116 this evening of minus 8 tenths. So a fairly significant low tide tonight. Over on the west side, your high tide will happen at 5.02 p.m. this afternoon and be 14.3 feet in Larson Bay. That will be followed by a low tide at 11.47 p.m., just about midnight, of minus one foot on our west side. Mariners, be aware, we do have a small craft advisory through Wednesday for Marmot Island to Sitkanak Kodiak's east side. West wind to 30 knots today, seas to 14 feet. For tonight, southwest 20 will turn to the east to 25 after midnight, seas to 9 feet. And for tomorrow, east winds to 30 knots, seas building to 14 feet by Wednesday night. Over in the Shelikoff Strait, small craft advisory through tomorrow. West wind to 30 knots today in the Shelikoff will become southwest to 20 late, seas to 7 feet. For tonight, variable 10 will become northeast 25 after midnight, seas 3 feet building to 7 feet late. And for tomorrow, northeast 30, seas to 10 feet. And the Coast Guard Marine Safety Detachment in Kodiak would like to remind crabbers to consider the stability of your vessel when loading crab pots. Stacking the pots changes the center of gravity, and that affects the stability, especially in icing conditions. Personnel from the Coast Guard Safety Office in Kodiak will be walking the docks providing voluntary safety compliance checks with an emphasis on stability. You can also contact them to schedule an inspection at 907-486-5918 or stop by their office at the Subway Building downtown with any questions. The senior citizens in Kodiak is in need of paper bags again. Please feel free to drop them off at the center 5 p.m. by 5 p.m. Tuesday through Friday. That's today. And they will be closed. Nope, they're still open. KMXT's new 2023 calendars are in. If you're a current member, stop by and pick up your free copy. Additional copies can be had for a mere $15. Non-members can also pick up copies for a mere $20. They're beautiful calendars, and thanks to all of the local photographers who submitted this year, a special thanks to those who had their entries chosen for the calendar. It was difficult. It's a great gift idea. Stop by and pick up a handful during business hours, Monday through Friday, anytime between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. here at the KMXT station up by the high school. Upcoming borough meetings include tomorrow's meeting of the Solid Waste Advisory Board. They will be having their regular meeting in the borough assembly chambers at 5.15 p.m. tomorrow. On Thursday, the assembly work session will be happening in the borough assembly chambers. That's happening at 6.30 p.m. On January 3rd, 
The Women's Bay Service Area Board regular meeting will be happening in the Women's Bay Fire Hall. That's happening at 5.30 p.m. January 3rd in the Fire Hall. And on January 5th, the Assembly will be having their regular meeting in the Borough Assembly Chambers at 6.30 p.m. All of these meetings are open to the public, and the meeting packets are available at the Kodiak Island Borough website. Contact the Borough Clerk's Office at 907-486-9310 with any questions. And it's coming up next week. AMC is conducting a two-day fishing vessel drill conductor class. That's happening January 4th and 5th. I believe that is Wednesday and Thursday of next week. It includes a pool session and drills, and it will go from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., mostly over at the Kodiak Seafood and Marine Science Center at 118 Trident Way on Near Island. The cost for the class is absolutely free for the Kodiak Commercial Fishing Fleet and $225 for all others. You certainly learn a lot. You'll never regret taking this class. And it meets the U.S. Coast Guard training requirements for drill conductors on commercial fishing vessels. You can register online at www.amc.org. That's A-M-S-E-A dot O-R-G. Or call them on the phone at 907-747-3287. The Alaska Youth for Environmental Action is excited to announce that applications are open for the 2023 Civics and Conservation Summit. The Civics and Conservation Summit allows young leaders from communities across the state to bring their concerns directly to the Alaska State Legislature. Learn how to advocate for the issues that matter to your communities and have your voice heard in Juneau. It's open to Alaskans aged 13 through 18 from all over the state. They're encouraged to apply and community members are encouraged to nominate the powerhouse youth leaders of their community. Applications are open now, and support for travel and housing is available. Please apply by January 7th. To learn more and to apply or nominate, visit AYEA, that's A-Y-E-A dot O-R-G. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT three times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., during the midday report at 1220, and in the evening at 7 o'clock. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org.